And we come today to one of those significant transitions in the book, uh, one that has uh, uh, captured the imagination, the fascination, the love of so many for so long. And since I've been out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks, and since we are at uh, this place where we're launching into a new section and a new focus for the book, it might be helpful if we just take a moment to step back and review where we have been from where we've come. Paul began this whole letter all the way back in chapter 1 by telling the Romans that he wanted to come see them, he wanted to minister to them and by them uh, be encouraged in his own heart. He tells them that at the beginning and then at the end he tells them how he wants to partner together with them to be helped on his way for other gospel endeavors that he has beyond Rome and into other places of the world. And so he begins, he frames everything both at the beginning and at the end with partnership. Partnership uh, and, and uh, help and aid and encouragement. But he moves very quickly from that to the subject of equality. That the gospel is for everyone. As he tells them, as he, the gospel he preaches is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no distinction. It's the message that's to be equally preached and is equally to be accepted by everyone. It is, as he says in chapter 1, it is, uh, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, from one person's faith to the next person's faith. Every person who will ever be saved is in the same boat. Every person who will ever be saved is under the same obligation to believe in the same way. Or as he says later in Romans chapter 3, after he sort of, sort of uh, emphasizes that point for a few chapters, he, he sort of concludes it all in verse 22, saying the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so his message, he begins with this idea of partnership. He moves to this idea of, of equality, or he might say impartiality, in the gospel and the way that God administers it. He levels the playing field, as it were, eliminating any advantage of any person, especially the Jews, if they feel like, because of some lifetime of religious involvement, some lifetime of good deeds, they had some leg up on everyone else, he says, that's not the case at all. God's wrath is revealed from heaven equally against both the Gentiles, against the Jews, against everyone, for everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glory. doesn't matter. And so by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, he says. Well, after that, after kind of introducing this idea of partnership and then going to this idea of impartiality, he really transitions for the rest of what we've seen so far to a concentrated focus on the content or the definition, the explanation of this gospel. Probably its most concentrated form comes right there in chapter 3, in verse 23, when he says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Now, if you hear that, say, whoa, that's a lot of big words. That's a lot of theology. You're right. One of the deepest, richest sections of theology in a concentrated form you'll find anywhere in Scripture. But that encapsulates the gospel. And Paul takes then from chapter 3 into chapter 4 and chapter 5 and, and really elaborates on what all of that stuff means. What all of this talk about justification and righteousness and even faith, what it all means for the person who wants to be saved. 
He spends two chapters dealing with that, and then he follows it with two chapters of addressing objections with a series of four questions in chapter 6 and chapter 7 that he knows people will have on their minds when they hear all this stuff. And then finally, he wraps it up in chapter 8 with this glorious uh, 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 elucidation of the implications of this in our lives, in the real world, where you and I live with all of its pain and its suffering and its disappointment, just exactly how all of this theology leads us to joy and to hope and to security. Now, if Paul stopped there, if he just wrapped it up there, this would have still been considered the greatest piece of Christian theology ever written. The greatest piece of theology, the greatest book in the New Testament, and probably would still have been the most loved book by Christians through the ages. But Paul doesn't stop there, because he realizes, at least for Jews, some serious questions have been raised. Several Serious questions have been raised by everything that he has said. Questions that not only might alienate them from him personally, but questions that might undermine their confidence in the gospel ultimately. At the forefront, from a personal standpoint, they might simply be asking the question, Paul, are you anti-Jewish? Have you become like so many others in our own day who have renounced their own heritage, who have even attempted to reverse some of their physical uh, markings of, of, of Judaism? Are you like so many who have rejected your heritage and have joined the Hellenism of the day? Have you become an anti-Semite? There were so many who had, and there have been so many down through the centuries who have embraced that or interpreted even Christianity to be that. And at times throughout this letter, Paul had been quite sharp in his confrontation of Jewish arrogance. And so he knew that from some of them, they might have just concluded, based on everything he had just written, that he was just another one of these Jewish haters, people who despised or were ashamed of their own heritage and were looking to run from it and escape from it. But behind that question, there would have been a much more significant one as it relates to the gospel. And that question was, what about all those promises in the Old Testament to Israel? What about all the promises that God had made to bless the Jews? What about all the declarations that Israel was God's special people apart from all the people on the face of the earth? God's people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, God declared to Israel, quote, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, end quote. So setting them apart from all other nations, setting them apart from all other races, setting them apart from the Gentiles and everyone else, God had declared that they were his special people. So was all that stuff really meaningless? Or worse off, was it a lie? Was it some grand attempt to deceive. What exactly did Paul believe about all those things? Or even more to the point, if those promises were on one hand meaningless, or on another hand were somehow cryptic, so that they meant something other than what they seemed to mean, then what does it really say about God's promises to Christians? You see, Paul had just finished up Romans chapter 8 with this glorious series of questions and all summarized, summarizing the point that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He had asked, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... 
And he concludes there at the end of that chapter, No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the Jews would have most certainly been wondering, what about us? What about the Jews? God made promises to us. Were all of those promises for naught? Were all Jews then ultimately separated from God's love by things present or things to come? If God's promises in the Old Testament didn't stand, what does it say about his promises in the New Testament? How can you be sure? All of those things would have been questions that dominated the minds of Jews. In fact, Paul probably didn't even need to speculate about that. Because these were the very questions that dominated their literature. If you were to just pick up and read any of the Jewish literature that had been written in the 200 years that preceded the Apostle Paul, these were exactly the kinds of questions that filled their literature. The Jewish nation was in a bad state. They were occupied by a foreign power. They felt like they were watching their, their, their culture and their society being dismantled piece by piece before their eyes by the surrounding world. They were far, far from living in or experiencing any of the glorious future that appeared to be promised or spoken about in the Old Testament. And so there were all kinds of pieces of literature that had been written over the past couple of centuries before Paul's time asking that basic question, what happened to God's promises? It was a well-formulated question and there were a number of divergent Camps that had formed in Paul's day, but it was definitely on the mind of every Jew. And you really can't understand what Paul is going to say to us in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. You can't understand any of it if you don't understand that climate, if you don't understand the questions they were even asking, if you don't understand the world that they were facing, if you don't grasp In other words, the backdrop of the Old Testament, the fundamental Jewish mindset that would have saturated all of them with promises of a special relationship to God from from the very earliest days, how throughout the Old Testament God had made these promises and reiterated them again and again and again to Israel, sometimes even woven directly into passages of judgment There would be these precious reminders that God would never, ever forget His promises to Israel. Isaiah 49, 14, for example, the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of Israel in Babylonian captivity. And he writes, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my God has forgotten me. But the Lord responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she have no more compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. End quote. These were the precious truths that Jews had heard all their lives. God had engraved them on the palm of his hand. Even in their moments of darkest judgment, Israel was constantly receiving these reminders of God's promises. And so it's important that we understand where all of this came from. Otherwise, as I said, we'll never understand what Paul is about to say to us over the next three chapters. It really all started in in Genesis chapter 12, the calling of Abraham, when God told Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then a few chapters later, really a couple of decades later, God establishes all this by way of a covenant in Genesis 15. A sacred promise sealed by a formal ceremony where we read, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So God makes his covenant to make them his special people and to give them a special place, a special land. Later in Genesis 26, God reiterates this, uh, this promise to Abraham's son Isaac. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. I'll give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And throughout the Old Testament you hear these promises again and again and again. Affirmed and reaffirmed. So that all the way down to Micah. You hear the prophet declaring, quote, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll show your faithfulness to Jacob, your steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And God is still reiterating those same promises. He promises Abraham, and then he follows that up and promises King David as well. Just like he made a covenant with Abraham, he makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. I'll read to you from there. He says, I'll make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men will afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you'll lie down with your fathers and I'll raise up an offspring after you who will come from your own body and will establish his kingdom And he'll build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So again, the Lord establishes this covenant. He establishes this promise, and he reiterates it time and time again. Even in the darkest days of Jeremiah, when his people have been carried off into Babylonian captivity, and he himself is locked up in a prison cell, We hear the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So you've got this covenant with Abraham. You've got this covenant with David. And God even makes a covenant, you may know, through Moses. A covenant that came with a law which Israel failed to keep. But even then, God wasn't finished because he writes to Jeremiah, or Jeremiah writes, I should say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by hand and brought them up out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the, to- for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and it will not be plucked up or overthrown any more. And even, he even says right there, Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. All of those things would have been enough. Those promises, those covenants would have been enough. Restated again and again in the major and minor prophets. But God gave them These covenants along with all kinds of promises so that they would never forget that he had every intention of keeping his word. Zechariah 8, 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, I did not relent, says the Lord. So again, I have purposed to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah forever. So you can just imagine a Jew's thinking. When someone comes along and they begin to talk about how God has leveled the playing field. You can just imagine when someone comes along and and says, look, God is just as interested to work in the Gentiles as he is to work in the Jews. You can just imagine what's going through their minds. Wait a second. God God had all of these declarations about our punishment. God had all these declarations about our captivity. God had all these declarations about our Uh, about our pain and our suffering and those things all happened exactly like he said they would happen. So what about the promises of restoration? What about the promises of blessing? Have those things somehow been set aside? And if they have, what makes you so sure that the promises that you're giving to us now won't be the same? It's just sort of a sampling, really, of what Paul knew was going through their minds. He'd already told them all the way back in chapter 1 that the gospel he was declaring to them, he had been set apart for, for a gospel which he says in Romans 1-4 was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Paul's saying, look, I'm not introducing something to you that wasn't already given to you in those Scriptures. But for so many Jews, it would have been terribly unclear how those prophets and those holy scriptures could have proclaimed this message while at the same time proclaiming God's unique affection for the Jews. So you can hear Paul's theme. If you just look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, It's not as though the word of God has failed. Or even down in chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Or down in chapter 11, verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And the answer in every case, by no means, absolutely not. If that's your conclusion, then you have reached the wrong conclusion. If you believe that God has rejected His people Israel, if you believe that they have stumbled so as to completely fall, you have misunderstood the gospel. The gospel, in other words, Paul's telling them, the gospel that I preached was revealed in the Old Testament and... In no way does it nullify any of those promises that were given. As a matter of fact, these chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, are more concentrated with quotations from the Old Testament than anywhere in any of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament. 
In these three chapters alone, there are 27 quotations from the Scripture and a number of allusions that go beyond that. So Paul is telling them, by no means have any of those promises been set aside. And then the question would then be, how? How can you then say that if you are telling us that God is working now among the Gentiles equally as he's working among the Jews, how can you have a gospel that, that undermines Israel's religious experience, that exposes them as, as arrogant and rejectors of God, and still in the same breath or at the same time still ensure their unique blessing. Well, all that Paul has to say in chapters 9, 10, 11 are written to explain exactly that. And of course, in explaining it, Paul will deal with the nature of Israel's past election because God did elect them. And the nature of their present rejection, as he gets into chapter 10, he'll explain why they are alienated from God currently before he finally turns in chapter 11 to the hope of their future restoration. These are the chapters that plunge us really right into the heart of two of the most controversial issues in all of Christian theology, which is the doctrine of election and the doctrines of end times, eschatology. And my intent is not that we would speed past them and try to avoid all of the hard questions, but really to take advantage of the clarity and the richness of what Paul has given to us here to give us a mature understanding of of all of these things so that hopefully we can say, by the time we reach the end of it, we can say with the Apostle Paul there in chapter 11, In verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. My prayer is that we would understand exactly why Paul breaks into that doxology, exactly why he feels God is to be so praised in reconciling his gospel of grace with his eternal plan for the nation of Israel. So Paul's writing this entire section to deal with, if you will, these two key questions that he knows is at the heart of every Jew. Two questions, one major one, one minor one. He begins with the minor one. Paul, are you against the Jews? Are you anti-Semitic? And Paul turns the tables on them somewhat and really tells them that they're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking if he is anti-Jewish, they ought to be asking why is Israel anti-God? Why is Israel anti-truth? Why is Israel anti-gospel? At least this is where Paul will eventually take them as he moves into chapter 10. But here, even at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, he raises that question, you might say, subtly or indirectly by pointing to all of the privileges that Israel has had. Why, when Israel has had every privilege given to them by God, why do they still not believe? You could just pause for a moment, because the truth is we could ask that of really all kinds of people. We could ask that of you. You are here today and some of you have received so many privileges from God, so many graces from God. Why, when you have been given so much exposure to the truth, why, when you have heard so much, why, when you have been given so many advantages that other people haven't received, why, when you have so many examples of faithful Christians around you, why are you still rejecting God? That's really at the heart of what Paul's getting at in these 
opening verses here. This is what he's asking here, particularly about his fellow Jews. And he addresses the overall question about whether he is anti-Jewish, really from two angles. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, he addresses it subjectively, or we might say through his personal pain. He addresses it through his personal pain. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There were no chapter breaks, of course, in Paul's original letter. He wrote it like anyone else would write a letter, just one constant, uh, continuous work. So this would have been, if you can imagine, reading the letter for the first time, this would have been quite abrupt. It would have come right on the heels of everything he had just said about how nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. A very abrupt shift and very forceful language. Paul states the issue both positively, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, and negatively, I am not lying. His heart breaks. He has great sorrow. He has unceasing anguish because of the continued unbelief of his fellow Jews, because of their continued resistance to the truth of Jesus Christ. And this is the reality of what was in his heart. So while he was uh, rejoicing and while he celebrated his own security in Christ and everything that he had celebrated in Romans chapter 8, he was equally burdened and equally grieved over the lost state of those who were around him, of those that he loved. And this is the natural experience of a mature Christian living in a lost and dark world, seeing everything around them, so many people who are, who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, of God, their heart is heavy about those things. And we can certainly be taken up with the joys of everything God has done to us by His grace and turn around and And within a short span of time, be plunged into tears because of what we know is the eternal reality of so many people that we pass at the office, of so many people we sit by in the bus, so many people we pass next to in the grocery store. And we see them and we are struck with grief. So Paul has this. This deep, deep sense of anguish. And it's real. In fact, he he gives us several assurances to let us know the sincerity of what he's saying here. First, he says he's speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, he's conscious of the fact that he's, he's speaking to them as a representative of Christ. He's mindful that Christ sees all of the things and knows all of the things that he says. Christ is both the one to whom he is accountable. Jesus says that every idle word that we speak will give an account for in the day of judgment. And Christ is also the one who governs all of the emotional realities of Paul's life. It's the truth, in other words, that Paul feels because he's in Christ. He has aligned his thinking and his desires and his attitudes and his sentiments and his attachments to the essential attachments and and priorities of his Savior. He lives with eternity in view, just as Christ did. And because of all these things which burdened Jesus Christ, Paul too is burdened. He wouldn't have it any other way. He wouldn't have his Savior being burdened and him getting off lightly. He has aligned himself with Jesus. And so he's speaking the truth in Christ. And 
He says, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So now on the negative side, he reaffirms that he's telling them the absolute truth. He can say it, in other words, with a clear conscience. His conscience is informed and is governed by the Holy Spirit. Some people may speak something, may say something, and it not bother them at all. They might have a clear conscience in what they're doing, but their conscience is not very reliable. It isn't a trustworthy guide. They feel no guilt. They feel no shame. They tell lies all the time. They do things to hurt people all the time, to take advantage of people all the time. They do things that are sinful, and their conscience isn't bothered at all. Because over time, they've allowed their conscience to become defiled, to become weakened, distant from God, and therefore unreliable. See, God gives a conscience to every person, an inner sensitivity, if you will, to moral standards, but that conscience is only as good as the moral standards that inform it. And so if your conscience is instructed simply by the standards of society that are downgrading all around us all the time, you're not going to be burdened when you fall into various sins. You won't be bothered as other people are bothered. But Paul says, I'm speaking to you and my conscience is bearing witness to me in or by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul informed his conscience by the work of the Spirit and through the Word of God. By daily confession of his own sin and by daily meditation on the truth of the Spirit in the Word of God, he was constantly sensitizing his conscience to the right moral standards and therefore it was a reliable guide in his life. And so he can say to them, look, I'm speaking to you. My conscience is clear by the Holy Spirit. This is absolutely what he feels. He feels this anguish and this pain. And really, it's not surprising. If you just know anything about Scripture, you know that this is exactly what every godly person throughout all the ages has felt when they contemplated the judgment of God against unbelievers. It was Abraham, you remember, who pleaded with God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Over and over again, asking if there's a way that God could overlook or pass over this, this, this plan of judgment that he had for him. It was Jeremiah, who in Jeremiah chapter 9 says, says he makes his bed a, a, a sea of tears. His eyes are like fountains, just flowing out with tears all the time as he thought about the destruction of the daughter of his people. It was... Isaiah, who pleaded the same thing, that the Lord would have mercy upon those that he knew were headed for sure destruction. It was the psalmist in Psalm 119, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And he grieved. Paul Paul had this stirring deep in his heart like every godly person ever has. He was not desensitized to the realities of the lost. In fact, he picks up in verse 3 with one of the great laments of all time. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's almost unthinkable. That Paul could literally contemplate the sorrows of eternal hell and still desire that if it meant his fellow Jews could be saved. He'd gotten to that place, that place where no suffering on this earth would be too much and really no suffering even in eternity. He, he was willing to pay whatever price it took in order to preach the gospel to the lost. A depth of love that really will rattle your spirit if you ponder it for a while. But this is what Paul felt in all sincerity, he says. Not that he could ever be separated. He already said it in Romans chapter 8. Nothing 
could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what he is, is, is expressing really is a level of identification, a level of compassion for the lost, and a level of identification with the love of Christ, who said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, lay down his life for others. And so Paul's demonstrating to us what a mature Christian understanding of the lost world looks like. He so contemplated and meditated on the love of Christ that he now felt that same love for the lost. He was willing to suffer what Christ suffered for them. He was wishing that he could offer himself, if you will, as a substitute in their place. The place of his fellow Jews so that they could be saved, so that they would finally glorify God. This is all so similar to what Moses prayed. If you know the story in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there was a golden calf. Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the commandments of God. And while he was gone, the people of Israel played the harlot with the golden calf, a god of their own making. So God pours out his wrath and a plague sweeps through the camp and thousands of people are dying by the minute. And Moses begins to pray for them, Exodus 32. Moses said to the people, you sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so he goes and he prays, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you've written. It's one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture. As Moses so moved with compassion for his people that he begins to approach God as if he's going to strike a deal. God, if you will forgive their sins. He gives the if clause, but there's never a then clause. Because it's almost as if he realizes the foolishness of what he's about to say. God, if, you, if you'll forgive their sins, then I will. But Moses probably realized there's nothing that he had. There's nothing that he could do that would ever be worthy enough to atone for the sins of another person. He had his own sins to deal with. How could he wipe away the sins of another person? He had this idea of substitution, but he knew that his resources were inept. And so he just stops short. And he says, look, if, if you can't forgive their sins, then just blot me out as well. Just take away my salvation as well. This is where Paul was. This is where every mature believer gets if they stop and they meditate and they align their thinking with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God and they look out at a lost and dying world around them, they don't look at that world as their enemies. They don't look at that world as the ones who are to be trounced. They look at that world as the ones who are to be saved, the ones who are to be reached, the ones that we are called to have broken hearts about. As Paul yielded his mind and his heart more and more to the Holy Spirit, he took on more and more the brokenness, not only of every godly man and every godly woman throughout all of time, but he took on the brokenness of his Savior, willing to offer himself in whatever way was necessary that the gospel might be preached. But then Paul shifts, secondly, in verse 4, to Israel's spiritual privilege. He's not anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Jewish. But there are some realities that Jews need to think about. He says in verse 4, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He grieves for them. But one of the reasons he grieves so deeply is because they had every reason to glorify God. 
They had every reason to believe this gospel. God had given them every blessing necessary. And Paul lists a number of them here. They're Israelites. That is to say, when God changed the name of Jacob to the name Israel, he made his special, set his special love on Jacob or on Israel, and therefore everyone born after him, all of his descendants after him, known as Israelites, would have been inheritors of that same special love. To them, Paul says, belong the adoption. Paul sort of tapping into that very rich Old Testament tradition and theology of sonship. Remember, Moses was sent into Pharaoh to declare to him, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you realize that's not by natural birth, but by adoption. God brought them in and gave them the privileged position as his firstborn son. To them belongs the glory, he says, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, where he, unlike any other nation on the face of the earth, came down and dwelt among them right in their midst, in the midst of the tabernacle and the temple. And and we're told that out of that glory, he spoke to Israel. He reminds them he hasn't done anything like that with any other nation. To them belong, he says, the covenants, which we reviewed earlier with all of their eternal and unbreakable promises. To to them belong the giving of the law, which meant that they didn't go through their life in darkness, wondering what was the will of God, but they were shown exactly the way to blessing, exactly the way to prosperity. To them belong the worship, the service, which refers to the whole sacrificial system so that when they did break that law, they had a way of making amends, of, of, of a temporary atonement for their sins. To them belong the promises, which encompass all of those prophecies of blessing and restoration that are built on those covenants made to the forefathers. And so, Paul adds in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the original recipients of these covenants. Although they had universal promises that would reach every nation, they also had specific promises that were directed only to the Jews. And then Paul crowns all of this by saying, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Just a little footnote, there's sometimes uh, debate about how best to translate that, but the context and the grammar strongly support the translation, the ESV here. This is Christ, who is God. God, in one of the most astounding And at the same time, grievous privileges privileged his people to be the ones through whom he was born on the earth. He came to his own, John tells us, and his own didn't receive him. So sad, really, when God has blessed a people so much, it's so perplexing that they could hear so much, be raised right at the foot of the light of truth and still miss it. Israel is a story of a people that God had called and blessed and in spite of every blessing, they still walked away from Him. That's the story of some of you. Some of you who are here, you've been raised in Christian homes, you've been raised with Christian parents, they've given you every reason to believe. They've given you every indication of the truth they lived lives of godliness in front of you and you're still living for the world you still are rebelling against God and walking away from him it's a story of some of you who are married and you see in the life of your spouse that genuine faith that genuine love and desire to obey God and what are you doing you are making their life miserable because you are pulling them and pulling them away to the world as much as you can because you don't want anything to do with God It's a story of some of you because you're here today because someone has invited you. Some friend who whether you know it or not is aching the way that Paul is aching for your soul. They love you more than you could ever imagine. They wept tears for you and they invited you 
to come and hear the gospel. You've been blessed. It's a travesty if you walk away from it, turning back away from God. The real tragedy is that it's not just your friends, it's not just your loved ones, your spouse, your parents who love you. It was Christ, we're told, who loved us so much that He gave His only life. He gave his, God gave His only Son. Christ gave His life. He provided the substitution so that you don't have to face the wrath of God. Your sins can be forgiven because He, he took God's wrath for us. This is a beautiful beginning, really, for us to understand exactly God's love for the Jews. It begins at the cross, it ends at the cross. It's a beautiful place for you to understand exactly the way of salvation. God is calling. And He tells us that all those who trust in Christ, or as He says later on in Romans chapter 10, all those who confess Him as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they'll be saved. Our invitation to you this morning is that you wouldn't come here spurning the love of God. You wouldn't come here this morning turning away from all these privileges, but that you would respond in faith and believing. We're going to close here in a word of prayer and a song. Let me encourage you, if you have questions, if God is working in your life, that you wouldn't leave without coming to see me, without seeing one of our elders, one of our teachers, anybody would be glad to help you. We'd love to spend the time with you to explain to you exactly how this salvation, this love can be yours through Christ Jesus. Let's stand together, bow our heads, and we'll pray and, as I said, be closed out with a song. Father, we're grateful, thankful for the love that's shown to us in Christ. And we confess that we've not pondered it enough in as much as we haven't in our own hearts filled our hearts with the same love for lost humanity. Lord, we pray that you would enrich our, our understanding of the love of God, the love of Christ. Give us that brokenness of every godly man and we pray for those who are here today in whose hearts you're already working. We pray, Father, that they would respond today, that they wouldn't turn away from the divine privileges, from your grace and your kindness. But may you save them, that they might glorify you forever and ever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.